Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 1st July with me in Welsh. When I was in Stockholm for World Environment Day recently, I spoke with CEO of anti-deforestation NGO Wildlife Alliance, Suona Gauntlet. We talked about the changing drivers of deforestation in Cambodia in particular and more broadly, and why better law enforcement is one of the keys to improved performance. Innovation Forum is pleased to be holding the next in our conferences uh, looking at the future of plastic and packaging in Amsterdam in October. To find out how the event is shaping up, a few days ago I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop. First though is some sustainable business news. The biodiversity crisis has been gaining traction recently and hopes were high that a meeting in the Kenyan capital of Nairobi would deliver a draft global agreement that could then be ratified at the next biodiversity summit, known as COP15, this coming December in the Canadian city of Montreal. However, the 1,000 negotiators from 150 countries were unable to finalise a draft, with only two out of the more than 20 expected goals agreed. The areas where agreement had been reached are on knowledge and technology sharing and promoting green spaces in urban areas. Reports from the summit have suggested that proposals have been watered down, commitment wording made more vague and timelines shifted from 2030 to 2050. Further talks may be convened before the Montreal summit. The Nairobi meetings were only put on because of a lack of progress at talks held in Geneva in March. The Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, a body convened by the UN, including more than 70 institutional investors, has published new research into what realistic carbon pricing should look like to ensure a path to net zero that aligns with the Paris Accord's 1.5 Celsius goal. At present, 25% of the planet's carbon dioxide emissions have a price, and the alliance contends that in general these are too low to have sufficient impact on emissions. Some estimates put the average carbon price as low as $3 per tonne. This compares with the UN High-Level Commission on Carbon Prices, which recommends that the average should in fact be somewhere above $50 and perhaps as high as $100 per tonne if the Paris Accord targets are to be achieved. The world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, has put together a number of responses to proposals announced recently by the US Securities and Exchange Commission on climate-related disclosure regulations. As we featured on the podcast, the new SEC rules will require, for the first time, companies to provide information on climate risks and how they will counter them, and for reporting on emissions in scopes 1, 2 and 3. BlackRock says that it is broadly in agreement with the SEC's proposals, but argues for closer alignment with the position of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which in some cases has less onerous reporting requirements than what the SEC proposes. BlackRock says that for scope 3 reporting, a comply or explain approach would be preferable to the mandatory complete scope 3 reporting that the SEC has advocated. Other groups that have commented on the SEC's reporting proposals, according to Reuters, include the US Chamber of Commerce, the Bank Policy Institute, the National Association of Manufacturers, and the American Petroleum Institute. These have all called for more discretion for companies in terms of the detail they need to provide investors. The Chamber of Commerce has highlighted some of the challenges in reporting on Scope 3 and has proposed that these should be voluntary. The SEC is expected to review the feedback from stakeholders and finalise the rules over the coming months. The earliest that experts expect the final draft is by late 2022. The Innovation Forum Autumn Events Series includes the next in our series on the future of plastics and packaging on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impacts at scale. To find out how the event is shaping up, a few days ago I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Thanks, Ian. It's good to be back. Tell me a bit about the agenda for the plastics and packaging event. So this year we decided to expand the scope of the conference to include the future of packaging. So we're going to be looking more broadly about how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. And you can find the full agenda online on the conference website as well. So what are the key themes this time? 
So there's a number of key themes we're kind of focusing on. So we're looking at material dilemmas and product design, closed loop packaging, innovation and technology, and then closing all together by looking at consumer engagement and how to create that behavior change to encourage more sustainable choices and behavior within packaging and plastics. So I know we're still confirming participants in terms of panelists and speakers, but what sort of companies are you hoping to get involved? Yeah, so the type of companies would typically like to get involved are kind of retailers, brands, waste management companies, policymakers, suppliers, NGOs, essentially any other relevant actors within the ecosystem. And in the past, we've had representatives join us from the likes of Tetra Pak, Mondelez, ABM Bev, Unilever, Walmart, Body Shop, Nestle, and many, many more. And our delegates range in seniority level from senior manager up to director level. So anyone to get involved and enjoy the conference. Absolutely. I think it's important to stress the event is designed for a spectrum of participants. It really, anybody whose job is focusing on plastics and packaging, this is for them. Tell me a bit about what the event will look like. We're going to be coming together at the Planetarium in Amsterdam on the 11th and 12th of October, and it's going to be a fully in-person two-day conference. We're going to have a variety of different session types, including plenary panels and more technical breakouts. The forum is going to be held under the spirit of Chatham House rule, as always, so delegates can expect very practical, candid discussions with very actionable insights being discussed throughout the two days. And on the agenda itself, we've built in plenty of time for networking opportunities, which our previous Future of Food event we had a few weeks ago in person was definitely a highlight for many people. Looking forward to go back to the Planetarium. It's probably my favourite conference venue of all. How can everyone get involved, Emily? Registration for the event is open. So if you want to get a discount, you can register before Friday the 8th of July. And you can go over to the conference website and book on there and you'll be saving 400 euros on your ticket. If you're interested in getting involved as a speaker or sponsor, you can also email me directly at emily.heslop at innovationforum.co.uk. Thanks, Emily. Look forward to the event. It'll come up very soon. (laughs) Thanks, Ian. Our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November, also in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have in an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. If you are quick, now is a good time to register, with there is a €400 Euro discount on conference passes available until the 1st of July. I recently spoke with Suona Gauntlet, founder and CEO of iLife Alliance, about her work focusing on tackling deforestation, particularly in Cambodia. Please note that we were talking in a bar in Stockholm, so apologies for any background noise. Why don't you start off by giving us a little bit of background into the work of Wildlife Alliance. Wildlife Alliance is a frontline organisation implementing direct protection to forests and wildlife. Our mission is to combat climate change by stopping deforestation. Your work is based in Cambodia. I notice it also has links to other projects worldwide. But in terms of Cambodia itself, what are the key drivers of deforestation in Cambodia and how are these drivers best tackled? Uh, first of all, Cambodia still has an enormous amount of forest cover, tropical forest. And unfortunately, the forest is getting decimated through mostly land speculation, which is clearing of the forest for illegal land sales and how to tackle those. Really, the first means of urgent intervention is having law enforcement rangers on the ground who are stopping the bulldozers and the chainsaws, confiscating the equipment 
and arresting the illegal clearing people. How then is that developing? How are you in Cambodia bringing forward great better law enforcement? We have been working with the government for 22 years, working with cross-agency teams of rangers and teaching them on a daily basis how to implement professional law enforcement as well working with the community. So it's really a community and government project. In parallel, we develop better jobs for local people. It's a very well-structured approach whereby we work with the communities to zone their land and demarcate and give them better jobs. And we work with the offenders to stop them from cutting and clearing the forest. Let's come to some of the specifics of the project in a sec. I'd like to think about some of the more general drivers of deforestation across the tropics. How are you seeing these changing? What are the kind of key points to bear in mind about deforestation in the tropics at the moment? Well, at the moment, we are in a severe crisis because over 50% of the tropical uh, rainforest belt has been cleared and destroyed. And when we think about the fact that this tropical rainforest is the main rainfall regulator for the Earth, of course, it's carbon absorption, yes, but it's also the Earth's greatest watershed. So now that 50% has already been destroyed, the temperature at the ground, and we've experienced this many times, the temperature at the ground rises six degrees centigrade in hours. And what it does, it emits hot air currents into the atmosphere that replace the previous humid, cool, rain-carrying currents that go into the atmosphere. So we have a complete reverse of temperatures going up into the atmosphere. And this is something I think that people don't necessarily realize that this is another of the ongoing feedback mechanisms that are causing uh, increasing temperatures from deforestation. It's not just about the carbon, it's about lots of other matters as well. Tell me a bit then about the Red Plus project you developed in Southern Cardamom in Cambodia. Wildlife Alliance works with the Cambodian government and we have developed since 2015 the Southern Cardamom Red Project, which is one of the largest in the world and the first in Asia. It's 500,000 hectares and it, we have 62 threatened IUCN wildlife species that we are protecting. Also benefiting 29 villages. We're getting uh, revenue from the sales of carbon. The way the project works is that you essentially provide ways for the local people to have a better livelihood. So much of the drivers of deforestation, as you mentioned, in terms of logging, come from people not having any other source of income. The forests are their asset, and in the past the problem has been that their asset, the only way they can realise that value is by chopping the trees down. The Red Plus projects, they're trying to develop and enhance the value for the local communities for having the trees intact. So what sort of economic opportunities are you developing for these villages? The drivers of deforestation have now evolved. It's the community, as you are describing, but it's also the people who are using modern bulldozers to clear the forest and sell them on the black market. So what we do for the local villagers is we help them to increase their income by developing, for example, modern agriculture for family farm holders and uh, selling their product on the market every week instead of just once a year. We help them develop community-based ecotourism where all the revenues go to the community instead of going to lodge owners who are simply employing people. We also help them through scholarships to universities and by bringing freshwater wells where the water has been depleted. And I guess alongside that, there's the security for the forest, the rangers and other personnel who are preventing the illegal logging that's been going on as well. Yes, because the destruction and the drivers have evolved now 
to be more driven by high-level barons, if you will, who are the uh, people managing the ne illegal networks. We need strong law enforcement, usually with the help of the community, but it's a professional law enforcement done by judicial police officers who bring the cases to court. You mentioned the collaboration that you have alongside government. That's great. That's, that's perhaps unusual in many of the tropical forest areas where our governments are prepared to collaborate and work together to protect the forests. How has that process evolved in Cambodia? Well, I would say that it's evolved towards something more and more positive because the commitment of the Cambodian government towards the RED projects, towards carbon offsetting, is very much on mark with the evolution of the UNFCCC, which is the commitments have to be filled in by the governments, step by step, year by year. Well, Cambodia has fulfilled all of its commitments. And as a result, Cambodia is the first seller of carbon offsets on the world market for the RED projects. No other country in Asia is selling carbon yet. It's thanks to the commitment of the government that this is possible. If they weren't doing their road maps, their forest reference emission levels, it wouldn't be possible. It's an example, is it not, of where the rest of the world wants to get to or needs to get to. You start at project levels and you can expand up and involve the government. That's where other countries will have to get to if they are going to take the benefits of Red Plus and the benefits of carbon offsetting and the introduction of carbon finance into communities. If that's being to scale, it does have to involve projects going together and working with the government. It strikes me that if you are involved in the government, then you get into a jurisdictional Red approach. But jurisdictional Red is very different than ours. Yeah. And we're using the same forest reference emission levels. So we're almost there. The big difference is that the government's the proponent, the owner of the project, and we're the implementers. Okay. In the jurisdictional, government is owner and implementer. How do you characterize the development of the acceptance of business internationally of the beneficial role that the voluntary carbon markets are going to play, not only attacking deforestation, but enabling them to get to net zero emissions for the business? I think there's been a huge evolution in the last two, three years by corporations in the West realizing the value of the forest carbon absorption. It has been wonderful for us, for example, to have visited many corporations in the UK, for example, and in France two years ago, and now seeing that these people are aligning to buy the verified emission reductions, which are the tons of carbon offsets. It's really thanks to these corporate partners that the RED projects are being implemented, because otherwise, we could not afford the cost of livelihoods for the villagers. We could not afford the cost for scholarships, nor the cost for ranger protection. It's an absolutely necessary partnership. And it certainly seems that this is the way it's going. I mean, the bond to carbon markets are and have been exploding over the past year, really, really increasing, as it strikes me that so many companies realize now that if they have made net zero commitments on a very challenging time frame, then they need to be involved in the carbon markets at some stage, because that's going to enable them to get to net zero. They can decarbonize their operations and their supply chains but they can't get it right to zero. They need to have some method of getting to net zero. And I think there's a general realization now that the voluntary carbon markets projects, like Red Plus projects, are the ways that everybody's going to have to go. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. So what do you want to see then for the future? What are the things you're excited about going forward? We are very excited to see that deforestation is reducing, but definitely we need more Red projects. Because as I mentioned before, it is only with the collaboration and the payment of VERs by the corporate companies that we can afford the cost of the counter deforestation activities, if you will. But the key to this really is, and I'd like to make an appeal to everyone, for governments who are committed to RED, it is very important to have NGO partners. 
it is the NGOs in the end who are the implementation actors in this whole RED project. It is the community, yes, but it's the NGOs. The NGOs are coordinating, the NGOs are bringing good governance, the NGOs are bringing the technologies for better livelihoods. Yeah, it's certainly true that Cambodia has had its challenges around tackling deforestation, but it's great to see that there are solutions that can work and mean that the deforestation rates are coming down. And as you say, with the goal of getting to zero deforestation in the near future. Suwana Gauntlet, CEO of Wildlife Alliance Cambodia, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And don't forget that if you want to join either the Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conferences in Amsterdam this autumn, you can take advantage of discounts on passes if you reserve your place now. Everything you need to know about these is available online. But that's it for now. My Innovation Forum colleague B. Stevenson will be deputising on the podcast for me next week. For now though, I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye.